Welcome to Recovery Plus Podcast. Fuck yesterday, focus on today. I'm your host, Dr. Mainly Hannon. Here, we celebrate and honor people in recovery one conversation at a time. Let's talk. Season's greetings and happy holidays from the Recovery Plus Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maylee Hennon. You know, as we come together in the spirit of this season, it's important to recognize that this time of year can be challenging, especially for those battling addiction. The holiday may amplify feelings such as loneliness, stress, anxiety, and temptation, making it a really hard time for a lot of folks. In the midst of the festivities, let's take a moment to extend our compassion and support to those who may be facing these challenges. Remember, you are not alone, and seeking help is a courageous step towards healing. Whether you observe Hanukkah, Christmas, Kwanzaa, or any other festive occasion, I hope your holidays are filled with love, kindness, and meaningful connections. On Recovery Plus podcast, we acknowledge the complexities of this season and the unique struggles that some may endure. Whether you're tuning in for inspiration, seeking connection, or simply navigating through, know that your presence is meaningful and appreciated. Even though we can't physically see each other, your part in this podcast community is truly valued. We are wishing everyone a safe and supportive holiday season. Thank you for listening and welcome to today's episode number 57. I'm excited to introduce a truly inspiring guest, Rachel Vasquez. She is a certified substance use disorder counselor and a living testament to the power of resilience and personal transformation. Rachel's journey is nothing short of extraordinary. Picture this, a path of destruction beginning at the age of 12, encounters with the criminal justice system by 22, prison, and a decision to turn her life around and go back to school at 37 with only a sixth grade education and graduated with a college degree at the age of 40. Having battled addiction for over two decades and in recovery since 2014, Rachel now channels that strength into navigating life's obstacles and maintaining a clean, purposeful life. In today's episode, we delve into her incredible story and her commitment to helping others overcome the shackles of addiction, trauma, and grief. This episode will also include Rachel's thoughts about ways to survive and enjoy the holidays. Take a listen. Hi, Rachel. Thank you so much for being on my podcast. Great to see you. Good to see you, too. Thank you so much for having me. Well, happy holidays as well. That's around the corner, isn't it? The holidays are creeping up very fast, way too fast. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the pressures and stuff like that, too. So let's dive right in. What was like life like for you in before recovery? Before recovery, life was very unmanageable. Life was very chaotic, very hectic. I did not have the skills to cope right. with anything, mm-hmm. right? I didn't have skills to cope with good times, bad times, sad times. And I also didn't have the skills that were re- were required to live mm-hmm. as a functioning, productive member of society. I didn't have um, education. Mm-hmm. I didn't have life skills. I didn't have goals. I didn't have ambitions. I didn't have dreams. That must have now looking back at that it's like how do you live at all when those things aren't shown to you and all of that I mean tell me a little bit about like 12 like when we talked earlier you mentioned Mm -hmm. you know there was a path of destruction starting at a really young age tell me a little bit about that so people could understand 
you know, you didn't have a lot coming into this world. Yeah. So, so yeah, I can get into that. So I remember what it was like growing up Right. and growing up. I, I didn't feel a part of my household. My mother remarried, entered a new relationship at a very young age for me and had children with the individual that she was with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I always felt like an outcast. I did not know how to build connection. And uh, my mom wasn't a very affectionate person. Mm-hmm. My dad growing up was distant. And so I can remember at the age of 12 seeking validation and mm-hmm. relationships outside of my household. And how that came about is, you know, I babysat uh, for a family who, you know, was involved in drugs. Mm. Um, and I identified at a very young age that being involved in that lifestyle brought people power and uh-huh. respect, mm-hmm. right? And, and And so I was able to identify at 12 years old that, that was something that I wanted. I wanted to have power control. And that is when, you know, the path took place for me. I can remember being in sixth grade, being in seventh grade and trying to fit in and trying to find ways to connect with people. And I started bullying at a very young age because it it gave me a sense of power, of control, of being able to exert that energy and feel important and feel validated seeing that people were afraid of me. You know, I can remember stealing from the store and stealing makeup and, you mm-hmm. know, jewelry and things from the store to take to school because people wanted those things and it would bring people to me and it would make me feel like I was making connections and being a part of. And Mm. those behaviors, you know, later led into using drugs and alcohol to to build those connections with people. Mm -hmm. I mean, it feels like from the beginning, you could have been easily victimized, right? Because feeling powerless and most kids young like that and what you're saying kind of indicates that you didn't have a lot of power, right? 12-year-olds don't, but when you feel like an outcast at such a young age and then seeing this family around drugs having power and control, that's a really big concept for a 12-year-old, wouldn't you say? Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And so once you got this power and control, because you got it, right? You got the power and the control. How did this translate into adolescence and adulthood? So, you know, it translated into me, you know, using drugs, selling drugs and using manipulation and using drugs as a way to get people to respond the way that I wanted them to. You know, I I used it as a tool to kind of get me through life, which essentially landed me in incarceration at a very young age. And I landed myself in prison. Yeah. And what did prison look like? I mean, you started, incarceration started like in your 20s, is that right? Early 20s, yeah. Wow. So walk me through what that was like and how that affects you now in terms of your own recovery. At the time, it was kind of like no other experience than what I was having, you know, outside of prison, because I took those same behaviors and I took those same tools and those same coping skills. And the only thing that I knew to get my needs met was to use manipulation, to use bullying, to, 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 
having power and control to me at that age meant validation, mm-hmm. right? It meant that I was validated. That is what I associated it to. And so those were the only tools that I had to get my needs met. And I took that essentially into prison with me and continued those same behaviors. And I used substances in prison mm-hmm. as well. And, you know, it, the impact that it had on me was, you know, tr- more trauma. That's how it affected me. More trauma, more things that I later on when I, you know, at the end of it, more things that I had to recover from. Literally, right. And yeah, absolutely. And using it today as a motivator in my recovery, I would say like being able to, you know, inspire others around me, you know, I, I work with people who are coming out of the system and to be able to share that experience and to be able to identify what that path has been like for them and to be able to be a motivating factor in their lives today to show them that, you know, we do recover from those traumas and those things that we see inside, which are are very different from the experiences that, that are happening outside of prisons. Absolutely. And, and very different from your upbringing too, right? I mean, your the prison kind of sounds like it reinforced some of those behaviors you learned outside, but then what, I mean, Talk to me a little bit about the addiction process and recovery. Sometimes recovery has relapse in there. Mm-hmm. And what did relapse look like for you? Well, every any time that I went to prison, because I did go to prison multiple times, or any time that I went to jail and, you know, you're sitting there and you're coming to and you're, you know, okay, I'm not going to use again. Like I need to I get my life together. Like just give me another chance, mm-hmm. you know, you're... You're, you're, you have that higher power in that very moment. If somebody's listening and you can help me, you know, I promise to not use again. And then I would get out and I would use, I didn't know what any other way to live mm-hmm. without using. And I look back and, and every time I did that, that was a relapse, right? Because in that moment, I made a decision that I wanted to do something different, but then I would go out and I would do the same thing and I would use again. You know, I have experience with relapsing after a long period of mm. um, abstinence. You know, I had an attempt at recovery, you know, it was my last term in prison and I, and I really decided that I wanted to do something different when I was there. And so I didn't use substances and I took the opportunity to participate in programs and attend 12 step meetings. And I really started to hear lots of things that gave me a little bit of hope. Mm -hmm. You know, they inspired me to seek more, right? I would get a little bit enough that would give me enough hope and open my mind up a little bit to where I would say, I want to learn more about this. I want to hear more about this. And I kept following that path and I got out of prison. I had the opportunity to go to a rehab facility. And there I was introduced to 12-step meetings. And I got to hear from a lot of individuals who were just like me, who had some similar experiences, who I could relate to and, and really connect to. And, you know, it would give me hope. Like, I see that there is a possibility, right? That I see that even me, somebody with a sixth grade education, you know, who never completed junior high school, there might be hope and there might be an opportunity for me to learn how to live um, my life without using substances. And I did that. I did that for about four years, Mm -hmm. you know, and I worked a recovery program. 
And I started to obtain all of the things that I never thought were possible, you know, even just getting a job in my late twenties, you know, that was a miracle. I had never had a job before. That was legit. Yeah, right. exactly. Right. You know, I was employable and the company that I worked for saw a lot of potential in me and they made me a manager and they gave me the combination to the safe and I had keys and, you know, all mm. of these things that somebody like me could be trusted, that somebody could see something in me that I still at that time could not see in myself. But those moments and, you know, as I cont- continue to grow, they gave me more and more hope. And then I obtained all of the things, right? I'm living on my own. I'm fully self-sufficient. You know, I have a good job. I have a car that's in my name. I have a license. I have insurance. Right. You know, adulting. It's adulting, right? (laughs) People love me. They respect me. People were happy when they saw me coming. And that was something that, you know, I wasn't, wasn't used to. And I was forming, you know, relationships back with my family and my children. You know, just all of these things are are flourishing and they're happening for me. And I stopped doing the work. Mm. You know, I stopped doing those things that were required of me to do every day in order to keep all of these external things that that I was achieving. And it, you know, and so I, I did eventually relapse and I relapsed on a substance that wasn't my substance of choice. Um, so my relapse involved me picking up alcohol and, you know, my drug of choice when I was using was methamphetamine. <laughs> I never identified that alcohol was ever a problem. The problem was always, you know, meth. meth, right? Meth is the reason why I committed felonies. It's the reason why I committed fraud, you know, in my mind at the time, this sure. is what I'm thinking. Like meth is the problem. And now I don't, I'm not committing felonies. I'm not you know, doing, I'm not living the way that I was living. And and I gave myself permissions to mm. leave with my corporate employees, coworkers, and, you know, all of the people that I'm managing that I, where I was working and I can have a glass of wine that, you know, it's yeah, okay. Cause, Cause I'm not addicted to alcohol. Yeah. I'm just addicted alcohol to meth. Alcohol is not the problem. Yeah. Alcohol wasn't the problem. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it, it wasn't a problem until it became a problem, you know, and, and that transpired and spiraled very, very quickly for me. You know, it went from every Friday, you know, after work, having a drink with the coworkers. Connection. To, yeah. Connection, okay. socializing. Validating. Yeah. And, you know, that escalated to now we're leaving on happy hour to drink and go back to work. And even that, even further, you know, that escalated and I ended up started gambling um, really bad and, you know, was stealing money from my job to support my gambling habits. And it only took a matter of a couple months before I was at the end of that spiral and was so uncomfortable with the unmanageability that was happening on on going on in my life that I decided to pick up my drug of choice again, which was meth. And then the path of destruction started all over, you know? Very familiar pattern, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I have not ever been able to... Some- been somebody that's been able to stop until I was arrested. Like it's always taken me being arrested for me to stop. Even with the tools and the resources and like knowing where to go, I was at a point after that relapse that I had felt so bad about myself. I had so much guilt and so much shame around 
losing everything again. Yeah. So I ended up going back to jail and that was the last time that I was arrested and I've been clean and back in recovery since. Since 2014. I mean, I think that's a real, and I really appreciate Rachel that you walk us through that because I, I don't think it's talked enough that relapse I mean, we know by the research, at least twice people relapse to get back on the road to recovery and stick to it. There's, that's just what we know is true. And sometimes it's multiple times of relapse. And I don't know. I mean, it sometimes gets harder and harder for people. And the shame that you were talking about is palpable. I mean, it is so deep. And it's like some folks are like, what is the point? I can't fucking do it. And sometimes yeah. they're right and they don't make it, right? That's the scary part. So for you, as we know, people have a t- tough time getting back on track with multiple relapses, you know, and you said this last time was it. And I guess that's really important. And you're, you're right. Everybody is different, right, with what recovery looks like. It's definitely different than sobriety, right? Um, Absolutely. But now there's this guilt and this shame and helplessness and hopelessness that is so insidious. How do you get through that? I mean, you're like, oh, fuck, here we go again. Now there's more to lose, right? Even more to lose. And now I feel like shit. Mm -hmm. How did you get out of it? And how did you stay and stick with you and your road and staying on track? You know, after my last relapse, I really had to take a serious look at my level of willingness. And for me, that has been about complete surrender. That has been about being honest with myself and being real with myself. Mm. And in anything that I am trying to control, I will fuck up. Mm. Mm, interesting, right? Because that's what you started with was power and control, validation. Yeah. And it's that very sh- thing, basically, that fucked you, right? Yeah. And now, and so come, I mean, coming back this, go ahead. You know, this full circle thing, go speak about that. I think that's amazing. Yeah. Like coming back this time has been about, I am completely surrendering. I am letting go, you know, that it was something that I never did fully. Mm -hmm. You know, I was willing to surrender certain things and I was willing to accept certain things, but this behavior and this tool of manipulation and this thing that, you know, this character defect that I'm keeping, keeping in my back pocket. Like, I don't want to look at that because I might be able to, I might need that one day. Um, You know, it's like really like coming to the realization that I cannot be in control and manage my own life without support, without a higher power, and without the things that have continued to help me throughout my journey, Mm -hmm. right? Like being accepting that this is a lifelong process. This isn't a one size fits all. And like, it's going to happen. And then when it happens, you're done. Like that's not how it works for me. And I had to really surrender to that process and be willing to do whatever it takes at any given moment to keep this. That's a humble place to be, isn't it? Extremely humble, extremely, you know, part of that process was showing back up, you know, Mm -hmm. to those same friends, to those same individuals in my support group who had witnessed 
me in my previous episode of recovery who had witnessed and been a part of that and and see the joy and all of those accomplishments you know i had to go back and, and be willing to admit you know where i went wrong and be and be willing to be honest about what that pattern was like be willing to be 100% honest mm. and not partially honest not just you know, using the blame and well, this instance happened and it triggered this emotion, being honest about when it started, you know, because the process of relapse happened before the action of picking up the drink, right? right? That's an important it, distinction. The, really the relapse happened when I stopped doing the things that helped me get to where I was in my recovery to begin with, you know, that all started long before I decided to pick up a drink. I love that that's a really important point, and I want to underscore that. I think it's easy for people to go, I just picked up, and I had no fucking clue how that happened. Really? It started a year ago. It started oh, months and months ago when you got stressed. It, got, it started when you stopped telling the truth. It started, so you're right, like it, the relapse is an emotional one first, Absolutely. And a relapse of cognitive thought processes. Like there's a lot of distortions that can happen in your thinking, right? Like, so, I got this, no problem. Yeah. It's one of the most frightening things I hear is I got this. Do you really? Nobody's mm -hmm. got this by themselves, right? And so for you, it was like willingness. How do you move past being afraid of sabotage. Like a lot of clients that I have worked with are like, oh my God, now I'm at the six month mark or, oh my God, I got 12 years. Like anniversaries are really big and they, there's a shadow side to them, right, Rachel, where it's a really big celebration, but it can also mean a lot of pressure. Like I have never passed like three months and now I'm getting close to the three-month mark or the six-month mark or the one-year mark. What if I fuck up? What if I do this again? And then the tension is so hard that sometimes they relapse just to get that relief. Tell me a little bit about, you know, that process for you. Did you ever go through something like that? Like, oh, God, now I have this time. What do I do? It can be really, like, easy to sabotage. Yeah, no, and and I've heard a lot of that from other, you know, people in my support group where, mm -hmm. you know, they got to a five-year mark and things got difficult and they started, you know, having fear and worry. I never yeah. have experienced that, right? Mm -hmm. I never think, what if I fuck up, right? I always <laughs> think, what if I don't? See, that's the difference. I focus on what if I don't fuck up? Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. can I accomplish if I keep going? You know, not what's going to happen if I do. My recovery has brought me hundreds of reasons to use. Yeah. Right? Mm. And <laughs> you don't actually need one, do you? <laughs> <laughs> I just make a decision to not and uh -huh. think about the possibilities of what if I don't pick up? You oh, know, so what can it bring if I make a decision not to? I don't have that. And I really believe it's just the continued mindset that I keep. I really don't focus. And I even, you know, I don't even like to spend too much time focusing on like my accomplishments. I more want to focus on 
what future achievements I have. Mm -hmm. I feel like when I get in the mindset of thinking, you know, I'm now a college graduate and I'm now have this certification and I've now obtained all these things that I feel like speaking to myself in that way gives me permission to be complacent in what I've achieved so far. I really mm -hmm. like to focus on what my potential is and, and what further things can I obtain if I continue to go forward. I love that. How did you get there? How did you get to this mindset like willingness, surrender, all of that? Not easy, not an easy road, obviously, but a powerful one. I believe that for me, it has came from the obstacles and the challenges that I've encountered and I've endured in my recovery process. I really believe, you know, I've endured a lot of loss and a lot of grief throughout my recovery process and using that as a motivation to keep going forward and remaining that mindset is really how I stay on the course. And, you know, when you say that loss and grief, that, that means there's healing there, Tell me a little bit, we got to talk before, and you mentioned that you forgave your parents, forgiveness, right? Forgiving mm -hmm. your parents as a part of your healing process and a part of your recovery. Forgiveness is something that is hard, right? Forgiveness is really something about being really open and the ability to not just let go of, but move through. Tell me a little mm -hmm. bit of how that has impacted your ability to, to be in recovery forgiveness? Yeah. So for me, you know, forgiving, you know, we're talking about my parents specifically right now, you know, my father is deceased. So I had to forgive somebody who's no longer even here. My father uh, passed uh -huh. away in my addiction and my mother who is, you know, is my mom and she's my mother and she, and you know, she is who she is. Right. So the process of forgiveness has really been more so about me letting go, right? Because what I realized is that when I wasn't forgiving, when I was, you know, still stuck in this place of being resentful about what mm. I missed out on as a child or what I wish I could have had or the love that I feel like I should have received, it kept me in a place of resentment, mm. blaming, and there's no room in recovery for blaming and resentment. Same and that's way. just, that's just what I've learned. Mm -hmm. right? so that's two totally different spectrums. And when I'm on a place of like blame and resentment, I am more feeding into the addiction part of my brain. Right. <laughs> and, and when I am more in an acceptance state of mind, I am feeding into my recovery. Right. And so for me, that really, you know, was about acknowledging that, yes, the decisions that, you know, that my parents had made were wrong mm -hmm. and that, you know, my upbringing was not the best and mm -hmm. that, yes, I deserved to be fed and fueled with love mm -hmm. and support, but that wasn't the case. And that accepting that this is generational, right? Like right. my parents did the best that they could do. And regardless, um, it wasn't out of a lack of love, you know? Um, and so really forgiving was about just accepting, accepting that they, their parents had a shit hand, mm -hmm. they had a shit hand and everybody did the best that they could. Even um, though that might've not been enough. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And that's the shit part, right? It's like, you know, you're just this innocent kid. Nothing, it's not about what's wrong with you. It's what happened to you. You know, these things happen. And, you know, you said, you know, just accepting what's going on. Accepting doesn't mean it was great. Accepting doesn't mean that you agree with it, right? And so parting the letting go and not being resentful is really about it sounds like the ability to accept what was, what was yeah. true. Because you can't change them. You can't change what happened. And so you have some choices here to stay pissed, resentful, and angry, where it feeds that addictive mindset of, you know, that people have like, oh, fuck. Now, because it feels so shitty, I'm going to use. I have every right to because they were so fucked, right? That's an easy right. place to go. Right, the blame game, the victim game, it doesn't. But again, like you said, acceptance is not about dismissing what happened. It's just more about acknowledging the truth of what happened, which was exactly. you didn't deserve that, and yet no, it happened. So now, what do you do with it? Right. So letting go, surrendering, like you said, but being willing. I think that's really important, and I appreciate you saying that, Rachel. Is being willing. To surrender, I mean, you have to give yourself permission to do the shit, right? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, yes. that's the hard part is like, now I'm willing because you know what it's like not to be willing. And that's a place that I don't want to be. Yeah. And I think that's the shift, right? It's giving yourself the permission to shift, to be willing to change, to be willing to surrender, to be willing to forgive. So you can have much more capacity for what? whatever. Yeah, exactly. Beyond. Without, without holding on to all that shit that I can't change. Yeah. And I bet you talk about that with your clients. You probably see that a lot. Like a lot of people have every reason to be bitter, to be angry, to be hurt and wounded. And what I'm hearing your message really loudly is yes. And yes, that sucked. Yes. That was brutal. Yes. No one deserves that kind of stuff. Now, what do you want to do with that truth? And what have you chosen to do with that truth? Accept it. Yeah. Right. Isn't that a big thing to swallow, though, to accept that this stuff was not great? It is. It is a big thing to swallow. But I can swallow the big thing or I can continue to live in shit. And die because of it. Yeah. Right? I mean... And, and that's the thing. It's like, you know, when you were willing and you surrendered, it opened a whole different door. Now you have a college degree. Tell me a little bit about that. You came from a sixth grade education, you know, in and out of jail and prison, successful at one point, relapsed multiple times. And then you're like, you know what? I'm going back to school. Tell me about that. Scariest shit I've done <laughs> yeah. ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, It was pretty scary. It was in my late 30s when I decided to go to college. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, fast forward, I lost my brother to an overdose when I had less than a year clean. And that light, it lit something inside of me, you know, and I, I I'm like, I want to be an alcohol and drug counselor. How am I going to do that? Right? Like I have to go back to school and I was frightened 
And so I did, you know, and so grateful for the support that I have built around me Mm -hmm. because I would not have been able to walk through that process. I was terrified. Mm -hmm. Uh, What is the fear for you? You said this was the scariest shit ever. I mean, let's be honest, Rachel, you've been through a lot of scary shit. Yeah. I mean, really, if you think about it based on what you're telling me. So what was so scary about this for you? The feelings um, of being inadequate, of of not oh, being able to achieve, not of not being able to accomplish, of not being able to do it. Um, school was very intimidating to me. I, I didn't have school experience outside of elementary school. So mm. to, you know, have to go to a college campus and sit down in a school setting and, and, you know, learn and apply things um, was very intimidated. And Mm -hmm. I, and I felt like I wasn't smart enough. And so, you know, I walked through that fear and I had people carry me through that fear, you know, and I I had support people who Mm -hmm. went with me to the college on my first day. And like, I'm going to walk you, you know, and at the end of all of that, you know, completing college uh, with 3.8 and um, it's, Amazing. One of my proudest achievements and accomplishments, because I remember what that first day felt like. And to think that I made a decision to go back the next day of school. Um, wow. Very proud that I walked through that. And, and yeah, I, I graduated college. <laughs> it's still sometimes saying that like, I'm a college graduate. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. That's a big deal. Yeah. Because it, it is because on paper, historically, you never should have made it. Absolutely not. Statistically, shit was against you, wasn't it? Absolutely not. And if I would have mm-hmm. allowed those thoughts yeah. of I'm not smart enough, I'm inadequate, I'm not good enough to control mm-hmm. and feed that fear, I would be that statistic on the paper. We wouldn't be talking. But because... I surrendered, I became willing, and I persevered through that shit. I'm a college graduate. (laughs) And so much more, actually, you know, but now you know, right? So that was a huge thing to do. And tell us a little bit about what you do now. I mean, you mentioned you went to school to be a drug and alcohol counselor. You have a college degree. Now you're a clinical manager, which is a really big title and what you're doing, right? So walk me through a little bit about what you do now and some of the risks of doing what you do, a person who is in recovery, working with people who are not in recovery yet, who are like, could be triggering all over the place for people. Absolutely. Yeah. So now I am a um, outpatient clinical manager. So I, I oversee everything clinical for a outpatient treatment facility, our agency, close to 200 patients currently. Oh God, 200. I'm, wow. Yeah. Wow. So I oversee 13 counselors. Mm-hmm. It's a mix between counselors and care coordinators. So I oversee their clinical caseloads and provide, you know, the training and the support that they need, talking with them and monitoring my own risks, being in recovery and working in the field. You know, yeah. we we have a risk of exposure to substances, exposure to triggering behaviors, yeah. exposure risk for transference, right? Mm -hmm. Counter transference, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like all of those things. 
things, projecting and transferring my beliefs or what my hope or what works for me or what my, you know, what motivates me. There's a risk of transferring that to patients. And, th and there's a huge risk of allowing a patient's trauma to be my trauma because yeah, it triggers secondary trauma. similar sure. experiences. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of exposure to many different things. And yeah, so, so I'm, you know, I, I teach my counselors and my case managers how to avoid those things, you know, what to do when those instances arise. For you, what, what is helpful for you? You know this stuff, you're training these folks. There's a ton of responsibility of what you do to make mm -hmm. sure that your staff are safe. And so they're safe so they can do the work. Right. Yeah. So for you, you know, in this world, people aren't super healthy in life balance. Okay. Yeah. I get that. I am probably yeah. one of the worst. So I get it. You know, that you're <laughs> all in, you know, you're yeah. sometimes on call and you're going to do whatever the fuck it takes to help that person. Absolutely. At sometimes at the cost of your own well being. Absolutely. And so the risk of being someone in recovery, working with people who are not yet there, coming in high as fuck or mm -hmm. reek of alcohol, who are high on multitude of stuff and that are carrying absolutely shit on them, right? Absolutely. And so, and then you're taking it out and you're touching these drugs. So yep. all sorts of danger, 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 danger is everywhere. Yeah. So like for you, what is one of the biggest things that has helped you not necessarily be unscathed, but really helps you separate those things and just know that that is off the table? I think my own recovery is yeah. instrumental to that process, right? So when I see an individual or I'm checking an individual's bags and I find that meth pipe that's fully loaded, mm -hmm. right? I need to be willing to be honest about what my first thought was. I have to be willing to be honest with somebody. If my first thought was, damn, that looks good. Right. I, I, I got to be damn willing to pick up that phone and call somebody and say, I saw a meth pipe and I thought to myself, that looks really good. Right. Because if I'm not willing to be honest about what is going on up here, that thought is going to continue to ponder and ponder. And then I'm going to be thinking about it, obsessing oh, over yeah. it. That's triggered. And that trigger turns into a craving. So for me, it's really about checking in with my sponsor, my support group, being honest. Mm -hmm. You know, it's normal right? that I see something and it triggers me. To think that because I have almost 10 years clean, I'm not going to be triggered. And that's a big mistake that I hear a lot. A lot of people say, I don't get triggered. I fucking get triggered, right? Because <laughs> that's really... human and that's just, that's actual recovery is exactly. being really innocent. If you were saying I'm not triggered ever is bullshit. Would bullshit. you agree? <laughs> I leave work every day triggered if it's not about <laughs> if it's not by somebody's behavior, somebody's mm -hmm. attitude, the way they look at me, mm -hmm. you know, their mannerisms. I hear somebody who, you know, talking about a story and then that gets my mind to going. But I, at the end of the day, like I have to be willing to be honest about mm -hmm. where I'm at, about how that made me feel. Yeah. So I can't walk through that and let it go, you know, as well as doing the I have to do my meetings. I have to do my step work. I need to see my therapist. You know, all of those things are are essentially what helped me. But I feel like the biggest thing is like acknowledging, you know, acknowledging when I'm triggered by a client, acknowledging when a client says something that 
you know, causes an emotion, some uh, feeling brings up my own trauma. Like I have to be willing to acknowledge that and verbalize it and be honest with somebody about what is really happening and be willing to like explore that. You know, I've had uh, instances where I'm telling my counselors, you know, they're like, yeah, I have to admit that that was some counter transference. Okay. Let's be open about that. What mm -hmm. was it? Let's go back to what you your experience was and, and what was what happened for you not you know just kind of blowing it off right let's talk about what was really what did that honestly bring up for you because if i'm not honestly exploring what that's bringing up for me what that's doing for me i'm not going to be able to heal from that and i'm going to continue to have those instances that are happening i think that's really, really valuable information because what I'm hearing from you is you have to be willing to be vulnerable. There's Absolutely. that V word. Most of us hate that word. Okay. It's, <laughs> it's worse than like, I will embrace the word fuck any day of the week. But when someone's like vulnerable, it's like, Oh God, that could be for many people really, really triggering in itself. Cause Absolutely. that means if you are vulnerable, you can get hurt. And you know, along with all the folks that you work with, being hurt could kill you. Being Absolutely. hurt is, is dangerous sometimes. Being hurt can be a trigger to lead to some form of relapse, whether it's an emotional relapse or actually picking up. Absolutely. Both, right. And so don't, walk me through a little bit about your ability to be vulnerable, especially in the workplace. So vulnerability in the workplace is a little bit different. You know, my self-disclosure is extremely limited right. because I am in recovery and I, and I, my, my motivation and my hope is that individuals can find their own recovery and their own process of recovery and do what works for them. And so I am extremely limited on my vulnerability at work. Vulnerability in general, I have learned, and even right now, I'm in a place of being vulnerable, right? My mm -hmm. mask is completely off. Right. I'm open. I'm sharing my truth. But for me, looking at vulnerability, I and it's a, a lot with what I was talking about earlier, you know, I have to view it as what is going to happen if I don't allow myself to be vulnerable, right? For me, that's a scarier place. To not be. To not be, mm -hmm. because if I'm not allowing myself to be vulnerable, I'm wearing a mask. Beautiful. You know, point. I'm keeping the mask on. And you're I, not being honest. Right. And, and for me, that's a more dangerous place yeah. than it is to letting the mask go and allowing a moment of vulnerability. In my experience, I, I haven't ever regretted being vulnerable. I think that's a really important message because I, you know, folks working in recovery and clients that are struggling with sobriety, let alone recovery, the vulnerability doesn't necessarily mean you're crying to everybody. Vulnerability could almost look like, wow, I'm having a hard day. Or, yeah. This is really hard for me to talk about. That's vulnerability. It doesn't, Absolutely. I think a lot of people get confused on vulnerability, like I'm like, let everything out. Actually, no. Yeah. <laughs> Part of vulnerability is I'm having a really hard time and I don't really want to talk about it here. Absolutely. That is part of vulnerability. And for you to go, I need to be really honest with myself. Like I was triggered, so I'm going to call my sponsor or I got really agitated. So I'm going to process my anger, which is really hurt with my therapist. 
Absolutely. Right. So those, I think that those are important things to talk about. And I appreciate you going down that road because just talking on this podcast is vulnerable. <laughs> Because <laughs> I know that you've not done this before, and and I am so excited and grateful that you're willing to do that, you know. And so, let's shift for a second. Now the holidays are coming. We talked about yeah, shit. It's like right around the corner. Holidays for some, as you know, can be really, really hard. And now there's this whole new non-alcoholic beverages, like non-alcoholic gin beer and wine. I have talked to a multitude of people, people who actually drink it, who are sober curious, and those who are in recovery themselves who actually make it, and then talk to folks who are in recovery who say, absolutely not. Where do you land with that in terms of, you know, that movement in recovery as well as during the holidays? What kind of things would you suggest? You know, consuming non-alcoholic beer, wine, gin, beverages, potentially more than likely is going to trigger a memory. It's going to trigger a feeling. Mm -hmm. It's going to trigger an experience, right? Mm -hmm. A trigger can turn into a craving, right? Mm -hmm. And once you have a craving, you're placing yourself at risk for relapse. You know, I look at it like staying sober is about making a conscious decision not to drink. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But being in recovery is about recognizing the the decisions one makes that could be detrimental to our ability to stay sober. Right. Yeah. And so being in recovery, having that determination and that commitment, I, you know, I recommend really exploring, is it worth the risk? Right. That's a good point. Right. Regardless how long, I mean, you know, you got 10 years coming and it's like, you must be really, really solid. So you don't have to worry about shit like that. The actual truth is that's not true. You're always got to I probably have more, I probably have more to worry about than somebody with six months clean. Right. Talk about that. I think that's a really good point. (laughs) I feel like because I feel, you know, I'm so far away from that, that hasn't, haven't picked up anything in so long, right? Like, hey, why not? Where somebody who is really new has that burn and that passion and that fire, like, absolutely not. I cannot do that. Like 100%. Like, I can't even go to family members house who drinks because I know that's going to trigger me. Right. right? But because I have more time, I feel like that's even a bigger risk because it could potentially if I'm allowing it to be on the back of my mind thinking that it wouldn't be a problem. But for me, it's a problem. Right. Right. I, for me, I need to look at the reason why, what is the purpose? If I'm doing it because of the social setting, well, where am I at and who am I with? You know, I've been to plenty of weddings of people that are in recovery where alcohol is served, right? I'm not hanging out at the bar mm-hmm. where the alcohol is served, right? right? I'm at the table with the people who are in recovery. Mm-hmm. So it's really, I, I need to really explore what is the motive behind it? Because anytime I'm drinking out of something that looks like a wine glass or a beer bottle, regardless Mm -hmm. if it's wine or beer, it is going to mentally take me to a feeling, take me back to an experience, take me back to a social event that is going to trigger a memory, an experience, a thought, a feeling that could potentially turn into a craving. Absolutely. And I really appreciate that because having spoken to a few folks with a long-term recovery, you know, I think that 
especially during the holidays, like, I got this, like, I don't have to worry, actually makes you more vulnerable, like you were saying. Vulnerable, like, more at risk, right? Absolutely. And so I, I appreciate that. And what other things would you suggest for people to be able to enjoy themselves, but also to be wary? Because there's this FOMO thing that can happen, you know, I don't want to miss out, you know, I want to do this. And especially if you're in early recovery, what things would you, like top three things that could be really helpful to keep someone safe, but also be able to be enjoying the holidays? You know, I would recommend taking somebody else a buddy. with you. Yeah, yeah. Take a buddy, use the buddy system, right. take, some, take somebody with you, have a plan, mm-hmm. have a plan in place that where you're saying right off the top, if this happens, this is going to be my thought. This is going to be my reaction. You know, once the alcohol gets put out, I'm going to think to myself, my recovery is way more important. And then my action is I'm going to excuse myself, right? Have that plan, know what you're going to do and then be willing to execute it. Mm -hmm. And have the buddy to support you. Yeah. Right. Because you know that a lot of folks are like, well, I don't want to put anybody out. I don't want to let them know. Like at work, nobody knows I'm in recovery and I have to go to this Christmas holiday party. I hear that over and over again and it puts them at risk. Mm -hmm. You know, definitely. I mean, even having having that phone number on speed dial, knowing who you're going to call, be willing to make that call, you know, go in the bathroom, walk away be willing to be vulnerable, mm-hmm. to be honest, right. right? To acknowledge this situation is triggering me, this event, this, you know, I'm, I'm having this trigger, this feeling, be willing to be honest with somebody about what you're experiencing at that time in order to reduce the risk for a relapse. Right. right? And, and like you said, it's like what really explore the motivation behind going to something that could be so risky. And sometimes there, I I think there's always a choice. It may not be popular. It may be really hard to do that, but setting healthy boundaries is a choice. Not always easy, is it, to go, no, I'm not going. Because you can get so much pressure. And so that can be really... So again, the buddy system, like you said, have a plan, have an exit strategy, have somebody on speed dial for you. I would also add, like, set a time limit, like 30 minutes, you know, and then go to somewhere else that is full of folks in recovery, if that's necessary, especially earlier on. You know, what other people, don't be by yourself either. Would you recommend that? Not to be by yourself. Yeah. And, you know, you just said it right? Like why, why make the popular decision? If I have to put that much thought, that much preparing, that much planning into it, then I probably shouldn't be going. Mm -hmm. Well, my boss is going to be there and everyone's going to judge me. How would you deal with that? Well, that might be, but is the judgment worth your recovery? Yeah. Because you mentioned prison, you mentioned starting over and rebuilding all sorts of shit after having four years under your belt, like mm-hmm. you, things were great. And what you said was really important during the holidays, continue to do the work. Do the work even harder. Yeah, do the work. Do the work because when you think you got this, that is a very dangerous, slippery slope. Would you agree? Absolutely. Because nobody got this 100%, do they? No, never. <laughs> Even with a life. decade of experience under your belt, 
you're like, you, you're doing the work and you're actually helping others do the work too, which is, could be risky, right? But when you're really solid, like you said, willing and able and honest, acknowledge the truth, right? Like that pipe looked good or now I'm triggered or that argument triggered into a conversation I had with somebody that I had no closure with, you know, but it really is about healthier choices and your willingness to surrender. And, you know, with that, what else would you say for someone who might be listening about like, wow, that sounds amazing what Rachel did, but that sounds too hard. What would you say? You can do hard things. You can. And they've done harder, haven't they? Yeah. yeah. For me, overcoming the obstacles and the challenges ha- has actually been pretty easy. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's actually been pretty easy. Coming up out of it was the hard part, but the path has been simple. I just continue to apply the tools that I have. I just continue to utilize the support that I've gained. And keep doing Sometimes that. Sometimes my support group is carrying me through trials and tribulations Mm -hmm. and I'm coming out at the end of them and I don't even understand how I got there, but it was because I had a tribe that carried me through that. Mm -hmm. And that's also really important is staying connected. Absolutely. Connection is the opposite of addiction. And I truly believe that. And I'm not saying when you're with a ton of people who are using at a rave or a mosh pit, I am saying connecting with people who know your story. You go, Absolutely. yo, I've been struggling just like you and I get it. I see you and you're not alone, right? At some point during your struggle, I bet it felt very lonely. Every day was lonely. Mm. Uh, even being around people, always having somebody with me, I I always felt alone, Mm -hmm. uh, misunderstood. Mm -hmm. And has that changed? Absolutely. Even when I am alone, I don't feel like I'm alone. It's not loneliness, right? You're alone, but you're not lonely. Those are very distinct. Um, Well, it has been a truly delight to talk to you and get some of your wisdom and sharing your story. I really appreciate it, Rachel. Thank you so much and happy holidays to you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Recovery Plus Podcast, Fuck Yesterday, Focus on Today. I'm your host, Dr. Maylee Hennon, celebrating and honoring people in recovery one conversation at a time. This podcast is sponsored by Red Door Coaching and Consulting, and you can find my podcast on Amazon, Apple, and Spotify. Also, you can find me at my website at www.reddoorcc.com. You can email me at mhennon at reddoorcc.com if you're interested in transformational coaching. Thanks again for listening. Talk soon.